Love you guys. How many could sing that song over and over again? Amen. Open up your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 5. So glad that you're here. Did everybody have a good Christmas? Spent time with your family? Enjoyed being alone as a family? Anybody else as us? No, I know my... <laughs> My daughter, I know. We're kind of like the weird Christmas family. Don't be like us. If you if you love big, extravagant celebrations, don't be like us. I don't really celebrate Christmas, but I've allowed my wife, which is so weird to even use that word, like allow. You know what I'm saying? Like you are your own woman. But in our house, like we said, okay, honey, you can do whatever you want. I just don't want Christmas trees or presents. That's who I am. Believe it or not, that's who I am. So my kids get no Christmas tree or presents. But they had a lot of gifts that came out, little small things, and they had some fun with the games. So did everybody have a good Christmas? Even if you're a weird family like ours, we had a good Christmas. So whether you were alone or with others, I hope you had a good Christmas. Go, uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. I know it would probably have just been better if I didn't say anything, but sometimes I just can't help myself. I have to tell on myself. It's like, I always say it's the opposite of confession. In confession, you go to a dark closet and you tell a priest all your naughty things. Here in the bright lights, the pastor tells you all of his things, right? I just feel like that expresses what happens here so much. I really do. It's like my confessional. I want to encourage you as we're uh, ending, out the new year, ending out the year, starting a new year, to stand in your freedom. So today we're going to go verse by verse through the book of Galatians. And the encouragement is going to be stand in your freedom. And uh, the first service, which we're going through the book of John, was believe God for greater things. So if that's something that's important to you, to believe God for greater things, check out the first service. Uh, let's go to Galatians chapter one, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And uh, stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Everybody say, stand firm. There is the message right there. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Why are we set free? Freedom. Come on. Why has Christ set us free? Freedom. For freedom. That's why we're free, to be free. So what are we supposed to do then? Stand firm. So stand firm in your freedom. Do not let yourselves be a burden again by a yoke of slavery. What does that teach us? That before we came to Christ, we were in a yoke of slavery, chained up, locked up. And so what were those things we were chained up and locked to? You can read earlier. We were chained up and locked up with false gods, idols, the sinful lifestyle. That was what we served. And even if you said, man, I didn't really believe in God, you were the God of your life. You were serving your false idol called me, myself, and I, the unholy trinity. God is the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's the holy trinity, me, myself, and I, the false trinity. And so when we look back at our lives, we're not supposed to look back at those times going, man, those were the good old days. I wish I could go back and do that again. You know what? We're actually supposed to hate our sin, hate our past. And the devil's a liar. And what he often does is he tries to tempt us with our past, with the high highlight reels, but he doesn't show us the moments in between. Can I hear an amen if someone can relate? The devil will always come to me and say, oh, you remember this time where you had illicit sex, you did these drugs, you were so just free and not in any kind of responsibility to a family and one wife. Do you remember how free that was? But he never talks about how depressed I was. He never talks about how I was worshiping the porcelain God, bowing down to that toilet, throwing up night after night. Anybody listening? How many know that's a, that's a humbling place to be? 
and all the friends that betrayed me, the despair that I felt in my life, all the broken promises between people and myself. I was a sinner that sinned against others and sinners sinned against me. Come on. And I, I, I always have to remind the devil, devil, I'm not going back to that past. I'm living what God has for me now, but let me now remind you of your future. So as the old saying goes, when he reminds you of your past, you remind him of his future. Amen? But that's how we're supposed to look at our lives. And not only just the ones that would be obvious, like myself, you would say, Joe, obviously you before Christ, you were living a bad life. You didn't know how to handle the ganjaman. Now we handle the ganjaman in such a better way. I saw a billboard on the way here that said, you have in-laws, we have cannabis. This is the world's mindset, you know? Like, chill out, man, smoke some weed, everything gonna be airy. Everything gonna be good, man. Let's go to Jamaica, let's go to the Bahamas, and no offense, because I know a lot of amazing Christians in those areas, but I'm just saying, like, that's what we think. Let's just smoke some weed, go to the Caribbean, and forget about everything. But that's not God's uh, best for us. Ignoring the pain doesn't make the pain go away. Numbing yourself does not make it go away. And some of us, like I said, weren't as bad as that, but you numbed it through your overachievement and your education. Some of you were addicted to your A's in college, and if you didn't get it, you became under condemnation and guilt. Others of you became addicted to your jobs. And so, yes, you would say, man, my idol wasn't weed or drugs or partying, but my idol was success. My idol was relationships. Some of you, you can relate to this. You have never been single because every time you are alone, you feel incomplete. You have to jump into a relationship. Can I hear an amen if you know somebody like that? I'm not asking if you're here today. I just want to know, do you know somebody? that always has to be in a relationship. Do you know somebody? Amen. We know somebody like that. And this insecurity made us do things that we now regret. Even some things that on the outside like good. Maybe you're happy that you had uh, achieved those kinds of things, but it cost you your friendships. It cost you your spirituality. Some of you might have been raised in church, but as you went to college, you stopped going to church because you had to get your career. And now you have uh, at some point you had your career, but you didn't have Jesus in your life. And all all that seemed to have glittered didn't turn out to be gold up there. Because how many know you can be a lonely doctor? How many know doctors are not satisfied on the inside just because they have a doctorate degree? When I was doing Uber for a side gig, which I really enjoyed, I wish I could get back to, but this COVID thing is bunk. And I'm not doing it because I'm broke or busted or needing help. I just love side gigs. I love multiple streams of income. I'm one of those people. And I love being around people like that who don't know I'm a pastor. And just, I wish I could turn on the camera and just record what I talk about in there. Seriously, I wish I could, talk, I could record it. But one of the places that I always used to do uh, the driving around was from the different medical schools back to their dorms, you know, or back to where they were staying. And I'm telling you what, some of these medical students were some of the most depressed people I ever met. As a matter of fact, as I began to research, they have a high rate of suicide. I didn't even know this. You can look it up. The rate of suicide among medical students is very high. And you're thinking to yourself, why? I mean, you must have worked hard to be at this place. You're going to be making, some of them make a quarter million dollars a year. Others make upwards of a million a year, depending on what kind of surgery or doctor they are or whatever. And you know, why would you be disappointed? You know, why would you not want to live? They put so much pressure on themselves. They come from a lot of them families that wanted them to do this. They put the pressure on themselves, and then they go without sleep as they're doing their rounds. I'm telling you. And so a lot of times, what do parents say? Oh, I wish my kids would be a doctor. Be careful what you wish for. 
Because we've had young adults in this church say, I'm going to Bible college, and the parents browbeat them and say, we came to this country, we did all of this so you could have a better life, not that you could be a pastor, not that you could be a pastor. We did this so you could be what, a doctor? Yeah, and kill herself at 22 years old? Because that wasn't what God called her to do in life, and she took on all that pressure. Are you listening to me today, saints? So whether your life on the outside looked like slavery to the sin or whether it was slavery to the sin on the inside, all of us have sinned and been a slave to sin, and Jesus Christ has set us free. And what we need to do is stand in our freedom. And as we've been learning in the book of Galatians, that means there are two slave masters trying to come at you, two types of ideology that want to put the Christian back into bondage. The first one is lawlessness, and lawlessness says, hey, now that you're forgiven, now that you have Jesus in the cross, man, as long as you got it around your neck, kiss it every now and then, do the sign of the cross, you know, as long as you say you're a Christian, you can do whatever you want. You're good. You have an unlimited credit card, and life is a spending shopping spree. Go for it. Sin as much as you want. Jesus loves you. Somebody say lawlessness. That puts people back into bondage because Jesus not only died to forgive you of your sins, but to set you free from your sins. So you and I are not supposed to look at it like, oh, the cross now means I can be forgiven of all the sins I want. We, uh, you know, we should say, yes, I'm thankful that those sins have been forgiven, but I no longer want them. The heart needs to change. A true Christian has a change of heart. Uh, David said in Psalm 51 when he was praying to have God forgive him of his adultery and his murder, he said, create in me a clean heart. You know, create in me, God, a clean heart, a heart that doesn't desire it anymore. And the way I would say it to you to describe what it, what it feels like is when you are now a Christian, it is as if you had never enjoyed those sins to begin with. In other words, that which you used to call a good time as a non-Christian, now as a Christian, is a nightmare to you. How many of you look back at your past that way and say, my heart has been changed and I do not look back at sin as a good thing. I do not look back on those things that I used to do and say, oh, how I wish I had that. Once again, we can receive temptation. Temptation can come and deceive us, but that is just what it is. It's deception. There is nothing in that world without Christ that is there for your good. All of those things that the Bible would consider sin are there because, uh, uh, are harmful because they go against the will of God for your life. Slavery in the, in the Scripture is never God's best. And then on the other side, you have lawless on this side, and then here you have on the other side is legalism. Legalism now wants to say, because you're a Christian, you better do this, you better do this, you better do this, and even though some of this stuff's not in the Scripture, I still want you to do this, and I want you to do this, because it's going to make you more spiritual. Everybody go, spiritual. And see, that's legalism. Legalism says, I have to take laws that didn't come from the Scripture and put them in your life to make you more spiritual because this is not good enough. And how many of us have come from either Christian backgrounds where we saw this in our family or we ourselves fell under some kind of legalism? Come on, somebody say amen if you can relate. Either you've seen it or you've done it to yourselves. And legalism is tricky, isn't it? Because legalism comes with the face of piety. Legalism says, well, if you really love God, you would fast this much. 
because that's how much I fast. And look what God has done in my life because I fast this much. Therefore, you should fast like I fast, right? And that sounds pious, doesn't it? And it's helpful, and I'm sure that it's good to fast when someone is encouraging you to fast if God has put that person in your life. I'm not saying that someone can't do that. But if that person or if that idea is coming into your heart not from God, it is no different than anything else that comes into religious minds. Well, shouldn't we pray towards Mecca certain many times a day? Well, why don't we do this when we pray towards Mecca? And then why don't we do this? And then before you know it, you have this whole other form of prayer, which is supposedly towards the God of the Bible, which is totally foreign coming from a false prophet. The Bible says that the Jewish people went so far in their religious tack-ons and add-ons to the gospel that they no longer even had the original. You can pollute the original so much with legalism that you no longer have the original. In other words, imagine there being a cure um, that is not forced upon you for COVID, okay? It's your choice. How many want things to be your choice? You you know, I'm not anti-vaccine. I'm just anti you sticking something into me that I haven't given you permission to do, okay? And I don't like being threatened and all these other things. But anyways, uh, going to the subject, imagine if there was a cure-all for COVID, and you would never have to get your 24th booster, okay? This would just take care of you once and for all. You're good, okay? So now you have this cure. How many would then say, well, let's see how much food coloring we can put in it. Let's see how much sugar we can put in it. Let's see how much we can make this taste like Mountain Dew. Would that be your concern, to water it down, to make the flavor and all of that? No, your concern would be, give it to me. If this is truly, in fact, what it does, I want it so it can help me. You know, and even more serious, like a cure for cancer. If someone developed a cure for cancer, would you, would the first thing out of your mind be, let me see if I can paint this, you know, color this thing yellow and put some fizz in it, like Mountain Dew? Literally, would you say that? That would, that wouldn't even cross your mind. The idea of messing with it would not even cross your mind. Maybe after it's been done for a while, now people are competing about where you get your cancer cure from. Maybe now there's a Mountain Dew flavor cancer cure. Now there's a Coca-Cola. I get it. Maybe at some point. But you know people, I know people who have died of cancer. Like we know how serious it is. And if some doctor had found the cure and here it is, you and I would not even want to touch it. That cure by itself is good. And yet people touch the gospel all the time. People mess with the scriptures all the time. And they do it well-intentioned, but I call them well-intentioned dragons. It comes from a book, but it's true. Well-intentioned dragons try to find space in the white, because it's black and white pages here. Follow me here. They try to find space in the white to shove in what the black doesn't say. So here the scripture says this, but now the legalist wants it to say that, so they want to shove in there in the white spaces what thus says Bob, thus says Mike, thus says Joe, and wants to put it in there. Legalism and lawlessness both lead to destruction. If you take in healthy um, if, if you take in the healthy amount of the gospel, you'll never need lawlessness and you'll never need legalism. If you begin to divert yourself from the diet of the gospel and you start flirting either with lawlessness or legalism, you'll become a slave to it. And if you're not careful, as we'll see here in just a few moments, that which you have given yourself to can now become your master and you can't serve two. The Bible says you cannot serve two. 
Either Christ is your master or somebody else or something else. Can I hear an amen to that? Christ is Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. You don't get to share him with legalism or with lawlessness. So be careful when you're in a culture that loves to do both. When you're in a culture that loves to to accent all the lawless things they think you should be able to get away with, and they have Facebook communities, and they write books, they even have videos on Netflix, the LGBTQ Christian movement, and how you can be gay, lesbian, bi, you know, whatever, Christian, and they'll make it look so normal. Look at our marriages, look at our lives, look at all this, and yet the Bible calls it sin. And on the same side over here, you'll look at these pious religious people. Well, they go to Jerusalem once a year. They fast twice a week. They don't eat, you know, pork and all of these other things. And look at how amazing they look. They look like the Mormons. You know, look how happy they are. And this is legalism. This is lawlessness. And they're both slavery. You need to be confident and secure that the Word of God is more than enough for you. That the gospel doesn't need renovations. It doesn't need a promotion. And it doesn't need to be watered down. Are you listening? The gospel by itself is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And that's why in this book of Galatians, he starts off with in chapter 1, and he says, this is a gospel issue. Anyone who changes the gospel, which is the good news about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and our acceptance of that by faith, anyone changes that, they have a different gospel, a different spirit, and therefore are accursed. So like I said, whether it's a Roman Catholic loved one saying, yeah, but just pray to the sweet mother of Guadalupe, or it's someone over here saying, hey, homosexuality is more than cool with God, whether it's from either one of those sides, both are changing what this precious gospel is. This gospel says no to sin and no to legalism. This gospel protects the soul from the bondage of living by the flesh or living by the regulations that people try to put upon the flesh. One says, let's give in to the flesh. The other one says, let's punish the flesh. Does everybody get that? Where the Bible says, count your flesh as dead. You whipping your flesh, you continually having some type of, you know, Uh, back and forth with it. It's not the way God intended you to look at your flesh or your desires. You're not supposed to have to go to a a mountain somewhere, to a monastery, and, you know, have a funny haircut and hang out with Friar Tuck to have a relationship with Jesus. You can hang out with Jesus right now and feel just as close to him as the disciples were. Amen? Amen. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. That's why in this church, whenever we see people leaning either one of those ways, we're always going to come alongside of them to offer up some guardrails. Now, if you notice, when you drive a car, uh, especially in a place that has like mountains or cliffs, there's guardrails. But before you reach those guardrails, there's normally like those little speed bumps. How many have felt speed bumps on the side of a highway? And how many are grateful for them, right? Especially if you're getting tired and you should be pulling over to sleep, but you're not, and you're fighting that urge. You go, okay, man, I need to go to a rest stop. That's a warning, right? That's a warning. And especially when you get up high into mountains and you start to get there, those things, man, could save your life. Of course, they could save you anytime. But what we do as the church is we try to provide those for people. We say, okay, listen. We're not your savior. We're here to help and assist you. But I notice you're pushing this way pretty hard right now. In other words, the Bible says, like alcohol for an adult, 
in moderation, it's not sin. But we see you drinking all of the time. We see you walking that line between moderation and being drunk. We're wanting you to hear. We want you to hear there's a warning here. Stop drinking so much. Even though it's allowable, it may not be beneficial for you. Same thing with secular music. Hey, it's okay you listen to non-Christian music, but we hear every time we get in your car this kind of music. Do you hear the speed bumps? We're putting up a warning. Be careful in going back to Jay-Z, Tupac, Mariah Carey, and Beyonce and some of that because that music can lead to a mindset that takes you away from God. Though occasionally, as long as it's not impure, it could be okay. But for you, maybe someone's in your life, and they just want to put that up there as a, as a road, uh, as, as a um, it's like a speed bump, right? And at the same time, someone over here may be saying, man, I got to fast, like how I was in Bible couch. I had to fast, but, you know, I felt God told me this, fast three days a week. But it was good for some of my friends to go, you know, put a little speed bump here and go, Joe, just because you're fasting three days a week doesn't mean you got to be mean to everybody thinking you're more religious and spiritual. Doesn't mean that you got to be a jerk to everybody, okay? Just because you're being told to fast doesn't mean we can't feast right now. You know, Joe, just because you said you can't go to the beach where they take, you know, the guys go with their shirts off and the girls wear bathing suits, just because you can't go there doesn't mean because I went there, I'm in sin. Does everybody get the difference? And so I, I had to learn, you know, there's that speed bump. Christians should help each other do that. I, as a pastor, want to help you to do that because we want to be guided by the Scriptures, and we shouldn't be afraid of other people coming to us going, hey, here are some things to look out for. Good pastors, good leaders, even just good brothers and sisters will do this. Husbands and wives, even among your friendships, you should be doing this for each other. One of the signs of Christian maturity that I have learned over the years is how well you stand in freedom. Seriously, that is one of the greatest signs for me in, is, is in your Christian maturity and has been a sign in my life is how well do you walk in Christian freedom. Because if any time someone comes into your life and says, hey, I think this could become a vice to you, and you freak out, then you're not secure in what God is doing in your life. Because the Bible says, don't let your good be evil spoken of. So if someone is there looking out for you with a pure heart, pure intention, willing to walk the journey with you, you should always be like, hey, man, thank you for sharing that. I'll pray on that. As well, if someone saw you guide, uh, uh, beginning to go towards the guardrails of legalism, as I've walked this uh, Christian walk by God's grace for over 20 years, I, I am thankful that freedom in Christ has grown in my life, and now I understand myself better and what God has for me than ever before. Like I've said to you guys before, I used to think anybody who disagreed with me or wasn't living for Jesus as, as I was had a demon. I used to try to cast demons out of Christians all the time. And maybe I was successful at a time or two because maybe I met someone that actually had a real demon. But Christians, I don't believe, can have demons, right? But God had to teach me, instead of trying to cast demons out of people all the time, why not learn to get into the nitty-gritty of their life and to begin to develop relationships that help them recognize what are these bad habits that are causing them to live or act like a demon as a Christian. Christian. And that took way more work for me as a Christian minister to get into people's lives and work through their issues as opposed to just going, Satanas, in the nombre Jesus Christo, Jesus, I, you know, uh, Satan, I cast you out in the name of Jesus. There was more work involved for me going into their life going, okay, this is probably not the devil because I've cast this out of you like three times and yet I'm still dealing with you. Now I have to teach you and walk you through this, right? 
And then at the same time, as well as being um, starting to get more liberal in my thinking, not liberal as a, a political, but more free. That's what, what, what liberal means. How many understand that? And then in Spanish, libertad. Libertad means what? Freedom. Yeah, right? So as, as we are conservative, we're also liberal in certain ways in our spiritual walk. So as I began to get more liberal to listen to secular music, as I've told you before, I didn't listen to non-Christian music for over 10 years. I didn't watch non-Christian movies for many years. All of these things, you know, compounded in my life. As I began to start doing those things, watching movies, like, wow, watching Spider-Man, it was crazy when I went back into movies after I had missed 10 years, you know, like watching all of these things. It was just crazy. I just felt the whole world was opening up again, like, oh, this is what people are talking about, you know. But I didn't miss too much because I still knew how to live in the real world, so sometimes it shows us you can live without movies, you know. But it was cool to go back and watch all these movies. And some of my friends, because I was a youth pastor at that time, some of the youth leaders and people in church just loved bringing me back to movies. Like, man, have you ever seen Braveheart? No, you got to see Braveheart. Have you ever seen this one? You got to see this one. And so it was fun. But listen, at some point, I began to realize I'm spending more time watching movies than I'm spending with the Lord. And yes, it's not legalism to say I can't watch a movie. It's just at this time, it's not beneficial. Because in, in my kind of personality, I can always go full tilt towards things. And so as you get older in Christ, as you grow in Christ, what I want to see in your life, every single one of you that are here today, by God's grace, I want to see you be able to stand in freedom. I don't want you to be offended when people are talking to you about things in your life. I want you to be safe and secure where you're at. If there's a disagreement, that's fine. But I want you to be able to have those conversations with grace. And then I want you to be able to have a testimony of what God has done in your life. How have you received freedom and stood in freedom? Like, what has that meant for you? So some may uh, have come into this church much later in my journey when I am at times listening to secular music, going to watch movies. I remember going to see Star Wars with some of the folks in the church, all these kinds of things. And so you may have never known me to not watch movies, right? So you only know me as the movie person. But I want to see in your life, has God spoke to you about a thing called too much movies? Has God spoke to you about too much secular music? Has God talked to you about uh, drinking too much? Like, has God drawn those boundaries in your life? Because that's a concern to me. Because I would rather cut off some things out of some people's lives than to have them keep sinning in it, right? Are you guys tracking with me? Because the Bible says if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Because it's better to go to heaven missing those things. It's better to go to heaven being known as lefty. Are you tracking with me, guys? Come on. It's, uh, all my men, look up at me when you get this. Don't be ashamed. It would be rather better for men to go to heaven being known as lefty than to go to hell with two hands. Everybody listening here? If that went over your head, it was meant to. I'm not going into more detail. But I had to speak to my men for a little bit. I would rather you go to heaven missing an arm. Why? Because your freedoms can put you into bondage unless you check them. So I want to hear as we grow in this church and as you go to Bible studies, life groups, and so forth, I want to hear as a pastor, this is a, this is a star next to my name by God's grace. I believe God is proud of us as a church when I hear testimonies of people saying, I know where boundaries are in my life. I know where lawlessness is, and I know where legalism is. I know where God has adjusted me to grow in this thing, and I know where he's developing me because standing firm is important. Standing firm. Somebody say stand firm. 
If I can just say it one more time, because I'm Polish, I'm going to tell you for the third time in a third different way. How many are ready for it before we move past verse 1 here today? Come on. Can I hear an amen? Here it is for the third time. I want to see people in this church that have said there were things I used to stand in that I don't stand in anymore. And it could be on either side. It could be, man, I used to be so legalistic, but now I stand over here. I used to be so liberal in my idea of what I could do with my freedoms. Now I'm standing here. And you have made a decision based on your personal spiritual diet. So let me give this example. For me, I don't like the word diet. I like the word lifestyle. Anybody else here like that? Because what does a diet feel like? Diet feels like you're punishing yourself. You're doing it for a certain amount of time. But a lifestyle, it sounds cool. Like I have a new lifestyle, you know? And my wife and I, we've gone through different phases of weight. Her with the babies and me just because I get fat, lazy, and sassy. Okay? So she has a reason for changing her shape over time because she's had six beautiful children. Let's give it up for my wife, making babies. For me, I have no excuse except becoming old, fat, and lazy, and sassy. But anyways, pray for me. But over time, we've gone up and down on the weight journey. What we've realized we do the best in the weight journey is when we make it a lifestyle. So instead of having whole milk, almond milk. The difference of calories between whole milk to almond milk is like three times less. Right? Like whole milk, a cup is like a hundred and some calories just for a cup. Almond milk is like 30 calories. How many like some cereal? Anybody else like me? Hey, I'm still having cereal, but I'm having almond milk, right? I'm having just about 100 calories of milk. Instead of when you fill it up with whole milk, which we know whole milk is so much more buttery and so much more rich, but it's like three times the calories, right? So you make a lifestyle choice. How about this? No chips in the house because I have this much de discipline when it comes to, <laughs> to chips in my house. If my favorite Frito-Lay's plane or the Ruffles plane is in my house, that bag is gone. So my wife has to hide it when we have friends over because she'll have it for guests and she has to hide it. Literally, there are hiding spaces in my house, okay? That my mom, my mom, my wife feels like that sometimes. No, I'm kidding. No, you're doing great. I love you. But she hides the food. Why? Because I have zero discipline with salty snacks come around 9 o'clock at night. I don't know what it is, why I want it, but something I just start craving salty snacks at the worst possible time in your, in your life. Like 9 o'clock at night, let's eat a bag of chips. Who said that? Probably nobody ever except for me. But you know, I got some laughing people. And then there's others who want ice cream at 9 o'clock at night. Generally, I'm not that person. You're either, sat, you're either salty or sweet. I'm the salty one, right? I have a weird taste for ice cream in the morning. I'll have it sometimes in the morning, but that's a whole other bad habit. But what do you do? Let's get, rid of the Let's get rid of the snacks. Now, is that because I cannot eat it like it's against the law? No, it's for me not a good thing. So I walk in this balance of freedom, and thank God I lost 60 pounds. I was at my heaviest, almost 300 pounds. And praise God, I lost it. And now I still got goals, and I want to achieve those goals. How many got some goals coming up? 2022, a whole new you, amen, in 2022. I already got some rhyming going on. Come next week. The rhymes will be, in, the rhymes will be here, okay? Because, you know, we pastors, we always got to rhyme with that year. So 22 is a whole new you, amen? And then you do what you do, okay? We'll keep it going. We'll keep it going. 
So freedom, freedom means that I have a lifestyle now. And that also means I had to insert exercise into my life. I had to insert things that I enjoy. And that's why some of you, and I just want to say this with all sincerity, some of you wonder like, man, why does he always wakeboarding? Why is he always snowboarding? You know why? Because I hate a treadmill. I hate the elliptical. I hate those things with a passion. I hate the treadmill. I hate the elliptical. I hate everything pretty much that does cardio in the gym. And I have tried them all. I've done the one where you do to sit with your hands and do that. I'm like, I hate this thing. I've done the elliptical where it just moves back and forth. I've done the one where it does like full like circles like this, like that. I hate that one. I hate the treadmill. I hate the one when it's inclined. I hate it when it's declined. I do, you know what I do now when it's like cold and, and rainy and I can't do wakeboarding, snowboarding, and all of that? I do the sit-down bike. That's what I do. I do the sit-down bike. I just pedal. I get out my phone, and I'm like, dear God, make this hour go by as fast as it goes by in the morning when I'm looking at Instagram. Because when I look at Instagram in the morning, an hour goes by. How did that hour just disappear? This is me in the morning in the bed. Hey, man, let me just check the Instagram. And then those little reels just get me going. These reels, the cats, the dogs, the animals, the little funny things those people do. And then all of a sudden I look and I'm like, I'm running an hour late right now. I'm like, I just turned this phone on. Now I'm running an hour late. But time goes on that treadmill. Dear God, a minute feels like an hour. Has anybody ever been on a treadmill and, and thought you just entered the twilight zone? This minute, this minute, I'm going, I just want 20 minutes, man, 20 minutes of this treadmill, and I'm thinking I have been here for five hours, and I look at it, and it's two minutes have passed by. I've watched all my favorite shows. I've done everything, but you're just in pain. You're just not enjoying it. So this is the thing. In all seriousness, people sometimes they say, well, I wish I had your life. I could go wakeboarding and all this. Dude, I just make time for my exercise. That's all I'm doing. And as I talk to a lot of older guys that are out there, we, we're hip to it. Like you'll, you'll hear them say, I'm going to the gym. So what, that, what does that mean for me? I'm going to do some laps down wakeboarding or uh, snowboarding now, you know, wakeboarding in the summer or whatever, because I am free. Somebody say, he's free. I'm free to choose how I'm going to exercise. I'm free to choose how I'm going to have that lifestyle. As long as I'm in line with my goals, I am free to choose. You may say, and I know people that are like this, that are in this church, you may say, like Rudy, I want an under six-minute mile, and that just makes him feel high, man. That guy gets, I wish he was here right now. Where is he today? That dude gets high off the thought of getting under six minutes in a mile. Like, he wants that so bad. That, to me, is torture. As my dad said, I say today, anytime you see me running, you better run with me because I'm running away from something, okay? Anytime you see me running, you better say, whoa, what's going on, Pastor? I'm running with you. They're coming after us because there is no way I am running for fun. There is no way I'm running for fun. If you see me running, you start running with me and ask me, what are we running from? Because I'm not running for fun. But this dude, he gets, man, it just pumps him up. I can't wait to do it. I'm at 617, 618, whatever. And that is the complete opposite of me. 
But what do I do? I go snowboarding and I set these little goals. If I can do this turn, this jump, this thing, and you just count your calories. That's all you got to do, right? Eat less, move more. Four words helps me lose weight. That's my third way of saying this to you because as it is physically, I think it's the same thing spiritually. Some of you, and Pastor Bertle, raise up your hands. Pastor Bertle could have been a monk with the, with, the, with, the, with, the, with the order of the Jesuits. Let's give it up for this man who prays like you have never met anybody who prays. This man, if he could, he would just go pray for 20 hours a day. Right, brother? Spend some time with your family and just pray and pray. When we first got saved, he's like, you know, wanting to pray at 4 in the morning with me. I'm like, brother, we'll get you the keys to the church. You can pray at 4 in the morning. And he's just a praying man. But that's how he disciplines himself. For me, I spend time with the Lord, and I know he does as well. I like to spend time with the Lord all throughout the day. I talk to Jesus in my car. talk to Jesus in the showers. Anybody else like that? You'll just just take time to pray with the Lord. And then I like to make at least an hour, me and Jesus alone, because I don't want to use that excuse why I just spend time with Jesus during the day. You know, I want to make some solid time, hour to two hours, right? And, And that's what I like to do. But if you said to me, and Lawrence is the same way, seriously, you two guys could be friars. You guys could be monks, wherever Lawrence went here today. They just love to pray. His father is right here. Let's give it up for Humberto, Lawrence's father praying, and we should love prayer, and I'm not teasing about prayer. I mean, I love to pray, but there are just people who could be content, content in 20 hours of prayer. Seriously, for me, I would be like, let's go talk to people about Jesus now. Let's leave the building now. Let's go do something else right now. Has anybody ever been like that in a prayer meeting? Like, we have told Jesus everything. He knows everything. He, we've told him everything. He's got it. Let's go do something now. Let's go do something out there for Jesus. And you see, you need to balance, right? Because he likes to do things for Jesus too, right? You know, and we got to pray and we've got to go out and do stuff. But as Christians, we sometimes compare our spiritual disciplines to each other and then we get in bondage that way. So, oh, I don't pray as much as Birdo does. I don't pray as much as he does. So that means I'm not spiritual today. That's not true. Jesus didn't call us all to pray like that. God called us all to have an attitude of prayer, to pray without ceasing, but he didn't say to everybody, stop what you're doing and pray for hours in your closet. He called some people to be farmers. He called some people to do this and that. But I'm thankful that there are people who just love spending time in God's presence. It's always funny because I can see those kind of people always raising up in the church. They're normally the ones that have little prayer journals. They're walking around with their journal. And Adam is one of those guys, the evangelist. Adam, if you know him, every time I see that little Irish guy, man, he is a guy that has a little prayer journal. He's like, I wish I could do an Irish accent, but he always likes to show me his prayer journal. Look at this prayer journal. Am I not telling you the truth? He brings out his prayer journal. It comes with like gold dust on it. Um, this is my prayer journal for the last week, and the thing is thicker than my books. This is serious. And he goes, this is my last week's prayer journal. This is my prayer journal for the last seven days. He has brought me to his house and has opened up like these, these storage bins 
these storage bins of prayer journals. God is my witness. My wife right here, we, I have my prayer journal on our phone. The last time I made an entry was like October 2020. You know, things are going hard in America. God is with me now. I pray I can remain strong. And I know it's like October whatever because I just made an entry the other day, like the other day in December. I made an entry, 2021. And I look back at the, I wish I could put up here. You guys would laugh at my prayer journal. And my last entry, I'm telling you, was like from October 2020, over a year. Now, if you looked at that and you said, Joe, do you ever talk to Jesus? Like, is that, is that a sign to us that we should find a different pastor? No, it's just, I just, I write to teach, but I don't write to pray. That's just me. It's weird, isn't it? Some of you write to pray. I write to teach. That's why, by God's grace, I've written over 20 books, but I have never wrote out my prayers for a consistent time period. I have always tried to do it when I see others doing it, and I want to be spiritual, and I want my journal too, Adam. I got one. I Look, I've been talking to Jesus, you know? But you have to know where your limits are, where your freedom is. But my family will tell you every single day, what does daddy say? I'm going on a prayer walk. I'm going to go spend some time with Jesus. I'm going to go in my room and pray. And in those moments, I feel like I am so close to Jesus. I don't want to stop and write anything down. I feel like everything is good. And maybe one of my biggest regrets will be that, because I always hear from other pastors, I wish I would have wrote it down more. But let me just tell you right now, I don't have that regret right now. I certainly don't have that regret right now. I do not regret writing more. Like, oh, I wish I would have wrote more. Not here. I'm glad I haven't. I'm glad I can just freely come into that prayer closet, no pen, no paper, and just soar on the eagle's wings with Jesus. Amen? So in your own life, look at where God has taken you. Look at what he has taught you and remain free. Now look at verse 2 as we get specific to this context for the remaining portion of our service. Thank you for your patience today. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, and remember, he's repeating himself oftentimes in this book. This is, I think, the third or fourth time he's repeated himself, making a point, so we need to get it. Again, verse 3, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. So does everybody see what side that they're getting attacked on now? This is the legalistic side. That's where they are being attacked here in Galatians as a church, as a Christian group of people. And they were being told by what we know as the Judaizers that if they do not get circumcised, they are not right with God. Now, I want to show you some interesting things here. Go with me to Acts chapter 16, verses 1 and onward. Acts 16, verses 1 and onward. Because we hear Paul, and we believe this to be one of his first letters if not his first, and it says, if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ is of no value to you. Everybody remember we just read that? Now look at what it says in Acts chapter 16, verse 1. Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was Greek. That means he was not raised as a Jew. You're going to find that out in just a moment. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he what? So he what? So he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. We'll go back to the Galatian passage now in our notes. 
Hold on, it says right here, if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ is of no value to you at all. And yet, in Acts 16, Paul does what with Timothy? Circumcised him. Now, is this a contradiction in the Scripture? No, it's a compliment. You can just shout out, no, there are no contradictions, amen? Come on, we believe that. Say no with our brother, amen? No contradictions here. So then how do we rectify this? In one place, Paul says, hey, if you get circumcised, Christ is of no value to you. In another place, it says he circumcised Timothy. Well, now we have to know about the intent. What is Paul writing here in Galatians about circumcision? Circumcision equaling righteousness. The Jewish people were saying, if we do not circumcise you, you are not righteous. And what Paul is saying is, if you come under that mindset that says, I have to be circumcised to be made righteous, Christ is of no value to you. Because Christ plus nothing equals everything. Does everybody get that? If you put Christ plus circumcision, you have now lost Christ. If you put anything with Christ, you have lost Christ. Christ is Lord of all as I said at the beginning, as a good one-liner to remember, or he's not Lord at all. Christ plus nothing equals everything. And so what he was doing for Timothy was not for righteousness. Timothy was not getting circumcised so that he could go to heaven, so that his prayers could be heard, so that he would be more holy, more righteous with God. Timothy was getting circumcised so that when he went on the mission trip with Paul, the Jewish people would not feel uncomfortable around him. This is important to understand because so often in our church when we talk about freedom, people go, well, I'm free to do whatever I want. Don't stop me. You're bringing me into bondage. And then we say, er, hold on. In a scripture with the same place where it says freedom, it also says that there are rules, order, things that we do. Paul said in Corinthians, women, don't talk at this point. You're causing distractions. Men, don't cut your hair short. Women, don't put your hair in braids. How many have heard those things before? Oh, but I thought we were free, Paul. I, Paul, I thought I could wear my hair however I wanted to. No, sorry. In this church, we want you to be distinguished from prostitutes, so don't braid your hair like them. Don't have that hairstyle. We also don't want to look like the world, so don't do this, don't do that. See, Paul knew how to say this is for culture, this is for getting the gospel across, and he knew how to separate those from this is for righteousness' sake. And so when we look to the scriptures, you better come up with an understanding of decency and an order reaching the culture. Otherwise, Paul just contradicted himself. Look at it one more time. Here it is. He says, man, if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ is of no value to you. Let's swipe over to Acts 16. But then Paul circumcised Timothy. Now do you see the two different circumstances? One, I said, do you all see it? Yeah, do you see it there? Because if you don't, Paul contradicted himself. He literally just cut off Timothy from the body of Christ. Paul backslid, in other words, if he's breaking his rule. No, but it's a circumstance. The circumstance defines that command. That command is defined within the circumstance. And so often people put us in Christians in these weird positions where they say, do you believe in circumstantial morality or the morality of the circumstance? And we ought to be careful when we answer that because we do. 
Do I believe that it's wrong to kill somebody? Yes. But will I kill you if you do certain things? Absolutely. See, there's a circumstance that changes, right? Who is the person that I would kill? Someone trying to hurt somebody that's innocent, someone that's trying to hurt either a family member or anybody, right? I, I will get in the way of that to the point where if that person has to die for them to stop, that's going to happen. So do we believe that circumstances can change how we apply the morality that never changes? Absolutely. Morals never change, but the application of those morals do change. That's why some of you look at Rahab lying to the spies. Is it wrong to lie to the spies if you're Rahab lying about where the spies went? No, because in war, you don't tell the enemy where the people are at. See, if, if I'm in war, I use deception as a tactic to kick your butt. How many understand that? How many know in uh, D-Day, we didn't give away the plans and go, hey, guys, this is what we're going to do in World War II just so everybody can know. No, the element of surprise and deception is used in war. But should I lie to you as a general rule in our relationships? Absolutely not, because we are together working for a common cause or a goal, and I'm supposed to have a reputation that is trustworthy. But if I'm at war with you, then I'm going to deceive you into thinking one thing so that I can get you to do that, and I can take advantage of that and defeat you. We would say the same thing in sports. I'm telling you, these are moral questions that have come up over ages. Uh, is it wrong for someone to play sports? Because if you juke like this playing basketball, what'd you do? You made them think you were going this way, but really you were going this way. That's a form of a lie, right? But is it okay to fake somebody out and break, break their ankles? Absolutely. That's okay, because in that format, not telling the truth is acceptable. It's a part of the game. That's why somebody, I was telling them that I liked the, the game Survivor, and they're like, man, could you ever play Survivor? I'm like, oh, yeah, I would come on there and tell the most, you know, fallacious things you could possibly believe, you know. I would definitely wouldn't tell them. I already have a plan in my head. I wouldn't come on there telling them I'm a pastor because then they're going to take advantage of that. I'm going to tell them I'm do something else, whatever. Why? Because it's a game. It's like playing poker. It's like putting on a face during that, that game to deceive somebody like, oh, you don't think I have it, but I really do. And so Christians have had these moral dilemmas over the years, and they've tried to resolve these things, but they don't understand that the Scriptures already give it to us. The circumstances define how we're going to act. When Paul is circumcising Timothy, he's not contradicting what he said in Galatians, which was written earlier. He's not saying to Timothy, I am circumcising you so that you, sir, are more righteous with God. He's not doing that. He's saying, I'm circumcising you so that you have the availability to minister to Jews who will not want to be around you if you're not circumcised. Now, did he do that with everybody? No. The Bible even says that Titus did not get circumcised. So some of his guys, he didn't circumcise. But he said to Timothy, we can only assume something like this, like, hey, man, if you want to roll deep with me, with the Jewish folks, you're going to have to be willing to get circumcised. It's like when we go overseas. When I go overseas and they tell me wedding rings offend the people, like in India because they don't wear any jewels, I have no problem taking off my wedding ring. Am I deceiving people saying I'm not married? Am I deceiving them? No, I'm just saying for them coming out of a pagan culture, maybe that makes them think that we're doing pagan traditions. Isn't that crazy? You never even thought about that. But there's actually a whole country of Christians that get offended by you wearing a wedding ring. You know, get around a little bit and you'll find out that there's a lot of, uh, let's say, idiosyncrasies out there in the world. 
And so whether I do this or if my wife needs to cover her head, because maybe in that culture the women cover their head, we have missionaries that are in Muslim countries where the guys, the Christians grow out the beards like the Muslims, the women cover their head. Why? Because they don't want to stick out in that culture as a Christian. They want to be able to blend in with the people and the testimony of Christ win them to the Lord. Amen. Can I hear an amen? If you don't understand that, you won't understand half of what's going on in the New Testament. And then people will get you to think that the Bible's contradicting itself, and it's not. That's why, like I said, when they're dealing with women in this area, they're saying these are the rules. But when they're dealing with women in Romans, Romans, Phoebe is coming with the letter. She's the one in charge. But when they're dealing with women in Corinth, they can't even talk. If they have questions, they have to ask their wives, at, uh, ask their husbands at home. Did that mean Paul changed the way he thought about women or he's contradicting himself? No, what he's doing is adjusting to that culture. Now, going back to the, to the, uh, the passage in Galatians chapter 5, notice what Paul is saying. Are you trying to be righteous in this way? then if you are, you have to obey the whole law. Because for the Jewish people, the circumcision kicked the whole thing off. You did it with your boys on the eighth day, and then from that point on, dude, you're a Jew. You're living like a Jew. You're going to keep the Jewish diet. You're going to keep the Jewish holidays. You're going to do everything a Jew does. And Paul reminds them of this. You can't have a little bit of the law. It's either all or nothing. Just like with Christ, it's all or nothing. But guess what all of the law does? Brings you under condemnation. Guess what all of Christ does? saves you. Go to Romans chapter 4 and see this in Abraham. Romans chapter 4. Look at how Paul describes this and how we ought to live. I, I wish I had time to read all of this. You guys are having fun though, right? Maybe I should, kind of, sort of. Okay. Look at Romans chapter 4 verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So how did Abraham get righteousness? What did he do with God? Did he do works for God? Did he get circumcised for God? Did he obey the law for God? No, what does it say he did for God? He believed God. That's what it says he did. Abraham believed God. Now look at verse 4. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. So if he would have had to work to get salvation, then it wouldn't have been a gift. God would have owed it to him. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God, and here's another word for faith, trust. Everybody say trust. When you're explaining faith to somebody, please don't use blind faith. This is not the way it's used in the Bible. We're not just taking a leap of faith. That's not what faith is. Faith is trust. Trusting in what God has said. You're not just willy-nilly throwing a quarter into the well at uh, Six Flags or Disney World wishing for something to happen. You are trusting what God has said. Faith is trusting God. Okay, does everybody get that? Because sometimes people say, well, I tried to have faith and it didn't work. You were just playing make-believe, okay? I'm sorry you wished upon a star and it didn't work and you called that star Jesus. But simply calling a star Jesus and wishing upon it doesn't make it true. What you and I are required to do is put faith and trust in God and what he said. So God had spoken to Abraham something specific about what he needed to do. And Abraham said, I trust you. I believe that, that God justifies the ungodly. Their faith is credited as righteousness. God says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. How many know that's good news? Amen. Now look at verse 9. 
Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? You see, he asked a question. Who is it for, the circumcised or for the uncircumcised? Is it only for the circumcised or does it include the uncircumcised? It includes the uncircumcised, doesn't it? Now watch. We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? When did God say to Abraham, you're righteous? Before he was circumcised or after? Before, thank you. It was not after, but before. Now look at verse 11. This is so important. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So is baptism the thing that makes you righteous, or is it a sign of righteousness? It's a sign. Is communion that what makes you righteous and you have to be hand-fed it by a priest because you can't touch it with your filthy hands? Is it that which makes you righteous or is it a sign of you being made righteous? You see, everything we do as Christians is a what? A sign of the righteousness. It is not that which makes us righteous. So then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that the righteousness might be credited to them. Now, going back to Galatians 5, let's read it all together in context. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare every man who lets himself be circumcised is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Can I hear an amen to that? He says here, you're looking for a righteousness. Highlight this for me, please. Verse 5, you are eagerly awaiting by faith the righteousness. Well, hold on. I thought we just read in Romans chapter 4, as well as we have heard in, in Galatians, that Abraham, along with us, are credited righteousness. How many remember reading that, that you've been credited righteousness? But why does it now say that you eagerly hope, that you're hoping for righteousness? Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. Galatians chapter 3, verse 6 says, So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. There it is, Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. And now I'm go back to our notes, chapter 5. In chapter 5, look at what it says, verse 5. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. So which one is it? Do we have it or are we hoping for it? Do we have it or are we hoping for it, class? Which one? You're wrong. We got the right ones. Give it up for both. Give it up for both. Come on, don't hate. Celebrate. I tricked you because what did you think? You thought it was an either or. And that's oftentimes what people do when they read the scriptures. They go, oh, here's another contradiction. 
Just like we read with Paul. Here it says, don't be circumcised, and yet he does circumcise. He says, don't let women talk, and yet there are women preachers. And then here's another one. He says, oh, you have righteousness. Stop working for it. It's already been given to you. And then in the same book, he goes, hey, we're hoping for righteousness. Well, how is it both? Once again, different circumstances. What righteousness does the Christian already have? They have the righteousness of being born again in their spiritual nature. Paul talks about this in other books, that you have been made a new creation, that now you are in Christ, you are holy, you are blameless. All of this has been done. But what are you waiting for to become righteous? As he goes on in chapter 5, he says that there is the fruit of the Spirit and the deeds of the what? The flesh. Somebody say the flesh. So what are we waiting for to be made perfect in righteousness? The flesh. The body. Because this body has to be counted as dead because it leads us astray to temptation. If you want to see him explain it more, because I'm thankful we have surround sound of Paul, because otherwise we might be a little bit uh, in a mystery here. What is he referring to? But since he writes almost identical to this in Philippians, please turn to Philippians chapter 3, and you'll see that he is righteous in one way. and he's hoping for righteousness in another way. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 3 verse 1. Notice what he says, and it's in the same context of circumcision. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. So this is obviously something he has wrote about before even to them. And it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. Now notice what he just did there. He said, these people want you to be mutilated to be righteous. But he says, we're the true circumcision because it's been done in our heart. But he says, our flesh is what we used to live for. Now notice the conversation of the flesh. Look at the second part of verse 4. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the what? Put confidence in the what? The flesh, thank you, I have more. So now he's going to boast about what he did as a Jew. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. He's telling you his his, uh, genealogy. A Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. He says, I did everything that I could based on this law. But now look at verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I count them all garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, watch this here, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. This is why we say that the law, uh, the righteousness is foreign to us. It is imputed by Christ. Righteousness is foreign and imputed by Christ. The righteousness that you and I have is not intrinsic to your nature. It belongs to Christ's nature. Does everybody get that? That is a powerful understanding, and that totally debunks Roman Catholicism that thinks you cooperate for righteousness with God. We who are synergists believe we cooperate with God in faith to believe, and that is a key difference. We are not Pelagius who says we cooperate with God for righteousness, and therefore the Calvinist, when he wants to be sassy, who thinks that you can only have a monergistic view of faith, they say we 
as synergists are not Pelagius. We are semi-Pelagius. They're making an error against us because even semi-Pelagism still attributes something to the work of a person in righteousness, and we count our works as filthy rags. Can I hear an amen? So anyone who uses that argument against us does not know us. Do not let Calvinists who try to say only God imparts faith and righteousness without the cooperation of men. Otherwise, if God, does not, if God is not the sole one acting, mono-energy, monogism, monogism, if God is not the sole one giving faith, the sole one giving righteousness, you then are a Pelagius or a semi-Pelagius. Do not let them convince you of that because we do not believe faith is of ourselves nor righteousness of, of, of ourselves. It's foreign and imputed to us, but where we are synergist, where we we cooperate is in believing. It is our choice. And we get that from the scriptures. They believe you don't have a choice. In other words, for God to save you, he makes you believe or he draws you irresistibly. Has anybody heard that kind of language before, irresistible grace? And we do not teach that in this church, nor do we believe it's scriptural. It goes against the evidence of scripture. It talks about choose you this day who you'll serve, you know, turn to God and all of these ideas of repentance. But once again, we who say this as synergists, we are not saying we're working to participate in getting faith, we do not do that. True Arminianists who stand against Calvinists believe faith is a gift. How many believe faith is a gift? You did not earn it. It came when you heard the word of God. Nor do we say we cooperate with God in our righteousness. It is not of ourselves. It comes from God. One more amen and I'll pass this up. Amen? Okay, thank you. Understand the difference. Now he says here, but that righteousness that I have is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Does he or does he not have righteousness? Does he have it? Yes or no? Yes, he does. He has it. Just like in the beginning of Galatians, the Galatians have it. But what we learned in Galatians is they're hoping for something called righteousness. What are they hoping for in righteousness? Keep reading. I want to know Christ. Yes, the power of his what? The power of his what? Resurrection. So he has imputed righteousness, but what he doesn't have is a resurrection yet. He is still in his same body. Is his body righteous like Jesus' body? No, Jesus' body, even virgin born, was sinless, and at the resurrection it is made now deathless. It cannot be put to death. death. Does he have a sinless, indestructible body? No, that is the righteousness he is looking forward towards. That's the righteousness we are looking forward towards, not intrinsically. Remember, it says here, he already has it. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith, he has it. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained all of this. What is the all of this he has not obtained? The resurrection, the glorified body, the sinless body. Or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And here's that famous verse. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, hallelujah, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. 
Isn't that beautiful when you harmonize Paul with himself from Galatians to Philippians? Now going back to Galatians and to that beautiful promise. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. What is he hoping in in regards of righteousness? The resurrection. And that's why in other places he talks about that if we've been made righteous inwardly, sealed by the Holy Spirit, that is our guarantee we'll be made righteous in our physical bodies. That if we were born again in our spiritual nature and saved, we will be born again in our, uh, if we've been born again in our spiritual nature, we will be born again in our physical nature, saved from the grave. That's the comparison that he continually makes. And then he ends where we'll end here in verse uh, 6. Vinny, would you come please? For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. So in other words... It's not this legalistic thing that people were trying to push on to Christianity to make people righteous that matters. What mattered for these people, what Paul wanted them to know, it was the faith that they had that expressed itself through love. Now, I wish I could go on and preach the message because that was literally just the introduction. Amen. That was just the introduction because I want you to stand, not literally right now, but I want you to stand in your freedom by faith and love. And then what else do you see? Hope. Didn't Corinthians say that these three remain faith, hope, and love? And the greatest of these is what? Love. Make sure everybody sees it. Hope. In verse 5, highlight it, please. We have hope. What else do we have? In the verse 6, faith. Highlight faith. And then what else do we have? Love. See, Paul speaks in that category of three all the time. Faith, hope, and love. In different ways, he'll structure it differently. But that's what's most important in Christianity. When we have the correct faith, the correct hope, what we're hoping for, and then the love that's expressing itself. So start with what we have faith in. We have trust in God's Word. We trust that as surely as Jesus was born of a man, born as a baby in a manger, he came the first time, was crucified, buried, rose again. We believe, we have faith, we trust he's coming back again. Amen? That's our faith. That's our faith. Our faith is synonymous with our doctrine. It's what we hold to. We have faith and believe that no matter the scientific principles of how God created something out of nothing, that when he made the humans, he made them male and female. And we trust and believe that that is the building block for all humanity and healthy society. How many believe that? One man and one woman in marriage raising children, right? Like we have faith and believe that. We don't want to change that. That's our belief. That's what we trust in. We then trust him with all the other things that he said to us. That it's good to be poor in spirit so that we can receive the kingdom of heaven. We believe that in humility we become kings and rulers with Christ. But we don't take this world as our kingdom by force. We enter the spiritual world by the force of faith and of dedication, and we believe it will change this world without raising weapons. Can I hear an amen to that? The poor in spirit have the kingdom of God. The meek 
will inherit the earth. We trust these things. We trust that when we confess Jesus as Lord, not just as a landlord or Lord of the manor or a Lord of the land. No, we trust him as Lord, great Yahweh, God the Son, equal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. We believe that when we confess him as Lord, we're saved. We may be tortured, we may be killed, we may be murdered, we may be persecuted, but we believe we are saved from the wrath of God brought into his fellowship. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we believe we come back and rule and reign with him. I could be here all day, but I just want you to get this. These are the things we stand for. We stand in faith. I stand in that faith, that doctrine, that teaching. Have I experienced it? Yep. But am I only basing it on experience? No, I'm basing it on his word because not everything I believe I I have experienced. I haven't experienced angels, but I believe in angels because the one who created them taught me about them. Isn't that what he said? He said, I'm coming back with my angels. He says, these children have angels. Isn't that what our Jesus said? And he said, I came from heaven to earth to do these things. So if our Jesus is the only one to come from heaven to earth, he's the only one in human history that I believe came, started there, came here, lived here, died, and went right back there. There is no other person in human history that has anywhere near the evidence that he did that, that he was once killed, buried, rose again. If that Jesus taught me there's angels, do I believe it even though I haven't experienced it? Yeah, now is that folly? No, it's not. The world calls it folly, but I call it trust. What's another thing he told me to trust him on? That up there are many mansions. And he was very clear. He said, if it were not so, I wouldn't tell you this. He said, I didn't, you know, in other words, he said, I didn't come to deceive you and make this look so grandiose you want to follow me. That's what Muhammad did. Hey, you guys want to join together as Arab tribes and fight over these people? Guess what? If you die fighting for me, you get 72 virgins. How how many think that's a good heaven to go to, you know? This is not Jesus. Jesus is not bribing people to follow him. It's exactly the opposite. When he sees his followers, he says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. In other words, you're not getting out of this what your flesh wants. But what does he say when he talks about heaven? He goes, if it were not true, I wouldn't tell you this. But it is true. I'm going to prepare a place for you. That's where I go, you may be there with me also. Sadly, we had to bury a few weeks ago a young man that was, well, not necessarily a young man, but uh, a special man named Felipe that was Karina's uh, uncle. He was 50 years old, but he was special needs. He would come to this church. And he came to my house just a few weeks prior to that. And he was dealing with some issues. He had never, they never expected him to live beyond a certain age. And it was a miracle he lived to be upwards of 50 years old. My family got back from the funeral. We talked about Felipe. And I said, guys, do you know where Felipe is right now? He's rejoicing in heaven. And if you saw him on earth, you would have saw he was special needs. He had what would look like someone that had special needs. He talked like someone who had special needs. But I said to them, now in heaven, he doesn't have that physical body anymore. In heaven, his mind is not limited by the body anymore. I said, when we get to heaven, I was telling this to my children. I said, Lucas and the others here and Zoe and Joy, my children here who were coloring with him, coloring with him in my house. I said, when you get to heaven, you're going to meet this mighty man of God and he's going to say, thank you for coloring with me. That was so much fun that you loved me and treated me special. See, Jesus told us that that's happening right now. That's going on right now. Faith, stand in your faith. Don't let anybody divert you from that. Stand in hope. 
When we think about what we're hoping for, hope is beyond the scope of our human limitation. That's a great way to remember it as a one-liner. I have hope beyond the scope of what I see. Isn't that the Christian life? That we're not only trusting that it's going to be so, we're hoping it to be so. And so often we get our hearts broken because we lose hope. We thought when we got older, many of us, that we would be this kind of a you know, person in this career. And when it doesn't happen, we lose a little bit of hope in life, right? We start to lose our hope. And then some of us thought marriage would look like this or look like that. And then when it turns out it doesn't or someone goes through a divorce, what do we do as humans? We lose our hope in marriage and family and love, right? But the Bible says that what we have faith in, those teachings, we are now to hope for. Watching Spider-Man, this is not a spoiler, but plug your ears if you don't want to hear a one-liner from it. She said in the Spider-Man movie, I don't want to ever be disappointed. The way I'll never be disappointed is never by, how does she say that? I don't want to be disappointed by never hoping. Yes, there's the word expected. Put this mic on for this nerd right here. He's got it. No, I'm kidding. You better say that one-liner. Turn this mic on. Of course it's not on. It's just not on there. He'll figure it out. Or I'll give you this special mic. Expect disappointment, and you'll never be disappointed. Yeah. Expect disappointment. Let's give it up for Vinny. Come on. He'll explain all the things of the movie that didn't make sense, because there's a lot of it that didn't make sense to me. Once you enter the multiverse, you have lost me. But anyways, think about that. Don't expect anything good to happen, and you'll never be disappointed. Is that the way Christians are supposed to live? Don't expect marriages will ever work out and you'll never be disappointed when you go through a divorce. Don't expect it. Don't expect, don't expect your kids to be good in their teenage years and then you won't be disappointed when they rebel like every other teenager. So just expect it. In other words, the way I would say it, the way I would write that little script, is I would say, if you don't believe that things can change, you'll never be disappointed when they don't change. Because you believe. Because it's an, it's, see, to me, it's like saying, I don't want to believe. I, I don't want to believe things can change. And therefore, when everything goes bad, I'm still all right. No. The Bible says Christians hope. Christians get up and get married again. Christians get up and go to their kids again and say, we're going to try this one more time. Christians get back up and go to school. Christians get back up and talk to their neighbors. Christians have hope for the nation. Christians have hope for Chicago. Does anybody have hope for this city? Has this city gone beyond our hope that we can't believe that young people will be respectful again? No, I'm hoping it. I'm hoping that our junior highs will have a tidal wave of Christianity sweep through the families and that children at that young age will know and love God and not be confused by gender identity and perversion and violence. But these junior hires, the elementary schools will grow up. These students will grow up and be awesome. See, we have hope as Christians. And then lastly, what does it look like? So I have faith in these doctrines and teachings. I have hope that things are going to change. Like I've put emotional stock in this, investment rather. I've made an emotional investment into things getting better. What does that look like? That looks like love. Why? Because now when you see things the way they're not supposed to be, you're not discouraged. You have an answer. 
Look at every great person in life, whether they were a professing Christian or not. But look at every great person in life who made a difference. They saw something that wasn't there, hoped it could be different, and gave their love and passion to it. Think about it. Just as a non-Christian example, Steve Jobs, looking at all the clunky computers of his time, looking at all the things that are awkward and hard to use. You have to be a computer nerd like this guy. No, I'm kidding. This guy over here. Duke, by the way, this guy kills it at everything he does. You want to talk about fantasy stuff? This guy's your guy. You want to talk about every one of the instruments here? This is your guy. You know what I just found out the other day because I've been playing Halo with my, guy, my kids? If you play Halo, this guy's going to whip your butt. He's your guy. This guy's good at everything. Let's give it up for Vinnie Barbarino one more time. Always being good. And I wish I was more of a nerd, so maybe I'm a little insecure teasing you. You can call him, I was going to say you can call me a big dumb jock, but I'm not really that either. I'm just my own little weirdy person. You can call me a weirdy. So you, you can, if you want to be fair, I can call you a nerd. You can call me a weirdy, and we'll just have fun with that. But think about this for a second. Steve Jobs looks at computers. They're big and clunky. Only nerds can use them. Seriously, they cost tens of thousands of dollars. What does he have faith to believe? He has faith to believe that phones can fit into your pocket. Back then, day one, he's believing in a technological vision that we're still experiencing today. The watches, the Apple, all of these things that he's creating, uh, that we see created over time, he already had in his mind day one, right? And he hopes that it can change. And yet everywhere he goes, if you watch his documentary, it's not really that good, but you'll get an idea of his life. Everywhere he goes, people are like, that's not what computers are going to be for. Every home will not have a computer, Steve, and we're not going to be able to make computers this small. It just won't happen. Your vision for this is bunk. And what does he do? Someone like a Steve Jobs. He believes. Somebody say he trusts. He trusts in whatever he believed in at that point, himself, the technology that him and Waz could make, him and his partner. And what begins to happen? He starts to put emotional investment into, I hope, I hope, I hope. And then he gives his love to it, and he becomes a jerk. Yes, we, we don't want to be like him. He becomes a very, very mean person. But he gives his love to it, and now, boop, iPhones, Apple Watches, personal computers, I remember buying Apple stuff, Mac stuff, when they would make fun of Microsoft. Does anybody go back that far into technology? Like, seriously, they would make fun of the nerds. They would have the Microsoft nerd. I'm a Microsoft nerd, and this is what I do. And then they would have the cool, hip guy going, hey, can you do this? Can you do this? Can you? Oh, no, I can't do that. And he was basically saying, like, you don't have to be a nerd to use this. And we as Christians should be the first ones to do that again. We as Christians should be the first ones to say, we have an answer for our schools. We have faith. We have trust. We're going to give our love to this. We are going to express our love for young people by going to these schools, by making school clubs, by teaching them the things of God. Think about what it looks like in your life as we get ready to close out this year. I won't see you till next year, Lord willing, right? How many want to make it to next year? Praise God. But I won't see you unless something else happens where I see you evangelizing or something. End out this year asking the Lord, what am I supposed to stand in this year that is of faith, hope, and love? Where are the passions that you have put in my heart today? My wife and I, we are using Khan Academy. Listen to this as a shame, a shame to the gospel. My wife and I use Khan Academy for the certain part of our homeschooling. You want to know why? Because all the other homeschoolers cost so much that we can, come on, can I get an amen from this mic? Turn on this mic, please, brother. This guy's been silent long enough. Come on, can I get an amen? 
Amen. These Christian homeschool curriculums, I got six kids. Some of them, listen to me, would not even let us use the same textbook for the next child. They literally said to us, am I telling the truth? Some of them did let them use the same textbook, but others didn't. They literally said it like this. Your student will not be registered in this class unless you buy the textbook for that class. But I already bought it for my other daughter. doesn't matter. You have to buy another textbook to be in this class. And yet there is a thing called Khan Academy, which is free and blows apart 99% of all the garbage, well, I'll be a little bit nicer, all the stuff that I see from homeschooling. And the reason why we still go to homeschooling and do whatever they ask us to do and try to find the least expensive ones is because we want the homeschool Christian curriculum of biology and science and history, right? But math, my daughter goes to Khan Academy. Khan Academy. Should be a Christian group. Think about how big Christendom is in America right now. You're telling me there is no Christian institution that can give away mathematics? All the churches that have all of the money, all of the video production, you're telling me there is not somebody in any of these churches that can make a video, 12 lessons, of mathematics for a fifth grader. This is what the church has become. It's sickening, my friends. Who's going to have faith, hope, and love to redefine what education is? to redefine what we call a Christian society and a Christian community. Because if we're going to be here for a while, if the rapture's not happening tomorrow, and you're going to be here in 2022, there's a lot of stuff to do. There's a lot of stuff to do in 2022. Who's going to make the next social networking site where Christians can unashamedly give the truth about what's going on and not have a fear of having someone with a fact-checking, uh, prideful mentality that's really, you know, uh, what we call indoctrination, take it offline? How many think Mark Zuckerberg's made enough money? How many think we need to start a new Amazon? See, my wife and I, we put our money where our mouth is. I want everyone to hear this in closing. I talk about faith, hope, and love today. My wife and I were paid by a Bible college to host it in our church, and we did it for almost 15 years. A church partnership with a Bible college. You guys put the Bible college in your church because online is where it's going to be at. These people were ahead of the curve, and we'll give you $1,800 per student that becomes a part of that Bible college. God is my witness. It was never about money, but if you're going to kick it back, we're going to use it for the glory of God. Amen? Come on. I hear an amen for that. But I'm not going to give it back. You guys listening? I'm not going to give it back. No, you keep it. No, I'm going to use it for God's glory. Here's the deal. That upwards, we got upwards of 20 plus students. Somebody take out your calculator. 20 times 1,800. Last year we had 20 students. 20 times 1,800. How much money did a Bible college give us last year? You'll see it in our report, so I'm not keeping anything from you. $36,000. But God is my witness. My wife and I would talk about it over and over and over again. How can this be? We have students going into debt. We're charging to become ministers. Most ministers aren't going to get a lot of money. You know, we're doing this, and it's hurting people. 
But at the same time, I wanted an accredited Bible college, a place where you could go and have the same level of education that you would get at UIC and any other place. I believe in standards, and I believe in that, you know, that standard. So I always said to my wife, I will not start a Bible institute. I can't do it. Because then what I'm doing is saying, we'll start it for free. You can come to my Bible class, but you get no accreditation. And last year, when the last straw happened, I won't go into all the details, but if you take me out to eat, I want to hear all the details. No, I'm kidding. Half kid. Red lobster. Yeah, there it is. Yep. Tell you all the details. No, I'm half kidding, right? Last year, some things happened, and we were like, okay, how many do we have now with master's degrees or higher? Okay, we got myself. We got Jared. I got a doctorate. Jared's got a master's. My wife's got a master's. Lauren's almost done with her master's. Juan's got his master's. Michelle's got her master's. His wife started counting them out. And I'm like, okay, I could probably talk to some of my friends. Eight to ten, let's go for it. By God's grace, this past year, your church started what will be an accredited Bible college for F-R-E-E, free. For free. By God's grace. Think about that. Here's $36,000. You guys keep it. We'll take our own money out of a bank account. Think about this for a second, and I don't want you to be angry at other churches, but a little bit sassy with them. Why is it? Come on, think about it here for a second. Why is it this church said we finally have enough now, we have enough people, and we have enough money that we'll foot the bill by God's grace to go all the way from here to accreditation, staffed and everything, We'll take it on. Metro Praise will do it. We'll raise money along the way if we have to ask for help. But Metro Praise right now, are we willing to take out of our monies and do this? Yes. To give it away when just in Chicago there are at least 50 churches with over 2,000 people over a million dollar budget that hasn't even crossed their mind. Are you telling me everybody's standing where they're supposed to be standing right now? Sounds like some people. Well, pastor, you know, it's not a sin to get money for Bible college. Yeah, but at some point, don't you give it away? It's not a sin to get, you know, money for conferences. But, you know, at some point, shouldn't you give it away? And they're just sitting there riding right on the rails, hitting the speed bump. And I'm just wondering, when is our culture going to wake up? And yes, I have been on that other side of legalism. I I have had to watch my words because sometimes I just want to rebuke them all and say, if you're not doing what Metro Praise is doing, you guys are sinners. Tell your pastor that. Tell your daddy that. Tell your pastor's daddy that. Tell everybody at that church that. Tell them. I'll call them. Give me the number. I'll call them and tell them right now. You got them on speed dial? Tell them right now. Listen to me. Pastor, you are a sinner. I'm telling you, God had to deal with me. That's the truth, isn't it? But I refuse. Somebody say he refuses. I refuse to step out of faith, hope, and love. I'm standing in it today. Anybody else going to stand there with me? For your family, for your community, for your calling, for your finances, for your health, for your marriage. 
all of those things that you and I would put before us today. There is a path that God has for us, and we need to do it in faith, hope, and love. And I'm going to believe God, just like I did in 2020, that when we come here in 2022, like we did in 2021, we're going to see more than we ever thought, imagined, or dreamed. Come back next week to the beginning of the year. Look at the reports. Watch what God did this year. We planted two churches, started a Bible college, and won disciples for the Lord. If you believe that, can you stand up? Give it up for Jesus. Jesus.